Welcome to the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. Happy New Year, Blake. Happy New Year to you, David. Did you stay up and watch the fireworks at midnight? No, I was in bed by like 11.30. <laughs> I actually did. I didn't intend to, but I was up at midnight and then immediately asleep. And the annoying thing here in California is that like all the stations delay all the coverage so that, that you can't do that. They want you to stay up and watch the whole thing. But if you stream it from your phone to your TV, you can get around that. Oh, I should have done that. Because that's <laughs> what we noticed is they actually stop coverage. Like you don't even get to see the ball drop in New York City. They stop coverage completely. They show Dr. Oz or something. Then they turn it back on later on in the evening. I'm like, yeah, it used to like get beyond the whole evening. I don't know. Yeah, no, so. it's, they want us. They want you to stay up and watch and so they can sell more ads. Um, there was only ads for uh, what Planet Fitness though. How <laughs> was that? The, the whole Times Square is like Planet Fitness, no judgment zone. Everybody's wearing the stupid hats. You're waiting. You're standing on your feet for twelve hours or more in Times Square in freezing weather to be a billboard for a mediocre gym. Why would anyone do this? And but you know, if Planet Fitness wants to sponsor the Cloud Accounting Podcast, yeah. we're more than happy to uh, allow you to do that as well. <laughs> I will wear that hat. We're, at, we're a no judgment zone podcast here. No judgment. Meanwhile, of course, all of our accountant friends are entering busy season. And so... All of those diet and exercise resolutions, like I never did it when I was in practice because I just, I'm too stressed out. Although, you just can't commit. Yeah, exactly. Probably a good thing. Uh, well, anyway, I have something new that I'm doing this year, which is, as I tend to do, I've switched note-taking applications yet again. So, I'm back to OneNote because Evernote couldn't do it for me. Google Keep couldn't do it for me. I even tried Notion, Notion.so. Didn't work. I'm back to my good old OneNote. And I think back in the day when I was looking at OneNote, it was still just on your machine only. And that was one of the reasons I went with Evernote because it was in the cloud. And it just whatever device I picked up, my stuff was there. Is OneNote, I'm assuming now with Office 365, is just the same way. Whatever you pick up, your notes are there. Yeah, it syncs to OneDrive and it's on your phone, your tablet, your laptop. It's in the cloud. I think there's a cloud like you can access via the web. And there's a clipper for Google Chrome. So, yeah, it works fine. It works great. So, I got all my articles here organized in OneNote and I'm ready to go. But you're a Google Apps guy, not an Office 365 guy. So, how, 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 does, this, how does this work in your world being a OneNote guy and a uh, Google Apps or Google Office guy? So, this is great, David. You may not have noticed being a Microsoft guy, but Microsoft had a a huge change of philosophy. I think it was with the new CEO. I forget his name. Uh, Nadella, I think is his, his last name. When he came in, he said, we're not going to be at war anymore, essentially with Google. And now you can actually get your Google, you can connect Outlook to Google. So I can connect, even though Giraffe is on Google and I personally am on Google, I could actually use Outlook and I connect, I authorize and all the Microsoft products work with my Google stuff. And is it the same the other way? So if I just want to like quit using my browser and put my email back in Outlook on my desktop, yeah. like I can connect to my Gmail accounts? Yeah, that's what, I'm do that's what I did. Oh, yeah. I, I, I'm switching back. This is this is the whole new world. Uh, I'm switching back to the my office stack 100%. Well, you like to talk about this in the world of accounting, David, is like the companies that are doing it right aren't fighting each other anymore. They're integrating. Yeah, right? exactly. You got you to gotta play nice if you want to succeed in this world. So I'm, I'm very happy. 
Speaking of playing nice, I noticed you tagged me on, on Facebook or uh, Facebook alerted you of, that we've been in 20 photos together. Yes, we've been tagged in 20 photos together. So, I reposted that suggestion and I said, 10 years ago, if you'd told me I'd be hosting the number one accounting and bookkeeping podcast with David Leary, I would have laughed in your face. And then uh, Hector Garcia <laughs> so, posted a comment and said, more like, I would have asked, what's a podcast? Well, that prompted me because I was like, I'm pretty sure a decade ago, I wanted to do a podcast. And so, I went on Twitter and there was a podcast camp that was in Phoenix in November 20th of 2009. So, I went and found this old tweet. And it's funny because the the short URLs in this tweet don't work. So, I don't know who I was talking about, but I'll read my tweet. It says, here are some sites I spoke about at PodCamp AZ, cloud computing session. So, I t- spoke about cloud computing in November of 2009. But I don't know what I spoke about because the links don't link to anything anymore. It's a URL shortener that no longer exists. I'm really impressed. I mean, you were a super early adopter of podcasting to be at a podcast camp 10 years ago. Wow. And it finally happened. And I might even have a shirt. I'm going to have to check around. But it was bad. I would wear that shirt around and people would be like, what the hell is that? Like it was like... (laughs) Even then, you know, yeah. like, maybe I don't even have the shirt anymore. I might have threw it away because I get sick of people asking about it. Like, what's podcast? Um, well, but now like, they just ask, what's the cloud accounting podcast? That's right. People know what podcasts are. Something like 20% of Americans listen to podcasts on a weekly basis now. Pretty good number. And I think 40 to 50% have listened to podcasts at some point. Should we um, jump in? I have some news this week. I've been promising about the predictions, right? And I went through lots of prediction articles and pulled out really the, you know, the the important parts of these predictions that exist. Out so there. we definitely want to get to predictions, but I'm thinking first we should touch some of the new laws that came into effect on January 1st here in California. That's a good start point. And then jump into news. It makes sense because it's it's just in California, but. It's affecting businesses all over the country because so many businesses sell to Californians or have Californians' data. And the two laws that we need to talk about are the California Consumer Privacy Act, also known as the CCPA, that took effect on January 1st. And there's also Assembly Bill 5, AB5, which reclassifies independent contractors uh, into employees and specifically was targeting the gig economy like Uber and Lyft. And that we've talked about before on the show. So that actually goes into effect or went into effect January 1st, the gig worker one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And actually, this is one that if you have clients in California employing contractors, this is probably going to affect them in some way, or at least you should do uh, have a conversation with them about it and do an analysis and figure out if they need to reclassify some of these workers. The The big change is that we have codified the test as to whether somebody can be a contractor or an employee in California. It's called the ABC test. And and by the way, this is much narrower, much a much harder test than the federal test for independent contractor classification. So, the burden is now on the employer to prove that somebody should not be an employee. So, by default, any worker is an employee. I, as an employer, now have to prove they're not and I have to satisfy three tests. This is the ABC. So, A, the worker is free from the control and direction of the hiring entity in connection with the performance of the work, both under contract for the performance of the work and in fact. So, the worker has to be independent. That's the part of independent contractor that's really important. They need to be able to decide how they're going to do the work. B, 
the worker performs work outside the usual course of the hiring entity's business. So that's a big one. That means if I am a tour guide company and I have some tour guides who are contractors and some who are employees, giving tours is part of the usual course of my business. And so now I can no longer have contractors that give tours. Now, the accountant who I work with can still be an independent contractor because the accounting is just something that has to happen so that my business can exist. The business is giving tours. Uh, accounting is just you know an administrative function. Although there, there is a very important detail about accountants that I want to get to after this. Okay, so that's B, that the work has to be outside the usual course of the hiring entity's business. C, the worker is customarily engaged in an independently established trade, occupation, or business of the same nature as the work performed. Meaning, generally, they have to have multiple clients doing this sort of work. If you are their only client, then it would be pretty hard to satisfy that test. So, they got to be independent. The work has to be outside the usual course of the business. And the worker needs to have their own business. They need to have a trade that they do right, with other customers generally. So they would kind of have to be a real business and not just uh, a gig worker, essentially. Right. Well, if they are a gig worker, they'd have to have multiple gigs. You can't be their only gig. So is that the way these the 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 Ubers, the DoorDashes, et cetera, are going to get around this? Because so many people that are an Uber driver are also a Lyft driver, and they deliver for DoorDash, and they do some Amazon package delivery. And that, is this how they're going to be like, well, look – they're, they're a gig worker. We don't have to employ them now because they have they're, they have to have, they have multiple well, gigs. So you have to satisfy all three. So C is not a problem for okay. Uber and Lyft. The problem for C is, or the problem for Uber and Lyft is B, whether they P, perform yeah. work outside the usual course of the hiring entity's business. Uber and Lyft are actually making the legal argument. They plan to not comply with this, and they are going to go to court and say that they are not in the business of providing transportation, that they are in the business of providing a platform that connects riders and drivers. I think I heard a judge already like call this out and that just basically told Uber that their name is synonymous with driving, like a pickup apps. And, and like it's, it, it's just like saying, I'm going to Google something. Right. right? Like that, like, how are they going to make this argument? They, they need a judge that will buy that argument. <laughs> and I think they also have trouble with A, the freedom from control. Because Uber and Lyft exercise quite a lot of control over how drivers do what they do. So they would definitely mm -hmm. need to loosen that up. And I think they already have started to do that a little bit. But the big question is B, right? What is the usual course of the business? Uber and Lyft say we're a tech platform, we're an app, we're not a taxi service. That's going to be an interesting legal argument. I could see that going all the way to the California Supreme Court. So it might take a while before this actually takes effect for anyone who plans to fight it because there'll be lots of legal cases and that could take years. Now, are Uber and Lyft tough? And what do you mean by that in that Amazon sort of sense of tough? So early on in the e-commerce days, I think when states wanted to start taxing Amazon sales, and Amazon, I think even pulled the plug and said, fine, we won't sell anything in your state. And then they played hardball and shut off orders to that state mm -hmm. early on in those days. Does Lyft and Uber have the guts to be like, fine, we just won't have any Uber Lyft service in the state of California and, and see yeah. how that goes for you. I don't think anyone has suggested that because it's such a big market for them and it's their home markets. To be based in San Francisco and not be able to offer your service in California, that'd be kind of crazy. 
But but who are people loyal to? They're going to be loyal to the ride services, and they're going to bang on politicians about getting this resolved. Yeah. Well, that's right. That's what Uber and Lyft are hoping to do. They're trying to get their users to complain. They're also, I think, trying some legal maneuvers. You know, we have direct democracy here in California, so they're going to put forth a proposition to directly counteract this and exempt themselves. Because there are exemptions, by the way, for this law. It doesn't apply to every single contractor. And there's a long list of these exemptions that people have lobbied for. Do you want to hear some of these? Well, let me, before I do that, I just want to like understand the impact back to us, right? So if, if I have a bookkeeping firm right, and I've it's all outsourced and I'm not hiring my bookkeepers that work for my firm as subcontractors, I'm sorry, I'm hiring them as subcontractors and not as employees, I'm going to have to stop doing that. Yeah, pretty much. I, at least it seems like it to me. So there are exemptions and this is what I was getting to that- some industry. Before you jump to exemptions, yeah. before you jump to exemptions, then my thought process is, could this be why QuickBooks Live is hiring people as W-2? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think. I mean, because they're in California. Okay. It's just not even worth it for them. Like the safe thing to do if you are a California employer or a, a national employer that employs people in California is just to make everybody an employee. And it's easier for big businesses to absorb those costs. So, Got it. So there are some industries that are exempted, right? So doctors often are contractors for their medical practices. Makes sense for them, right? They make a lot of money. They have their own S corporation and then they get paid as a contractor for services. So doctors, surgeons, dentists, podiatrists, psychologists, veterinarians. Everybody that has a good lobby. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Lawyers, insurance brokers, architects, engineers, private investigators, or accountants. But this is really interesting. It is only... I've been looking at this list. It's only licensed accountants, which that's CPAs. So basically, if you're if you're employing if you're employing an accountant as a contractor for your business, then and they're not licensed, you might have to make them an employee. So this changes, right? In California, whether you have a license or not really doesn't matter a whole lot in terms of your employment status. But now there's a potential question here. Got it. So then, what else is coming out of California? More legislation. The other big one is the California Consumer Privacy Act. And I think you've done a bit of research on that, right? A little bit. I mean, it's very, it's, it's, it seems very similar to uh, European Privacy Act that they passed. Yeah, that was GDPR, right? Yeah. And, a lot of, and, and most apps that you're using and websites you go to are compliance with that right now. And they were able to stay in compliance because they have business interest overseas. But the average small business may not have business interest overseas, so they're not in compliance, but the average small business in the States may have business relationships with California. Right. And that's and so there's a ripple effect of this California law to the other business, uh, other businesses. And that's why you've gotten, I don't know if you, you got like dozens of privacy notices in your email on December 29th, 30th, 31st. And not as many as I thought I was going to get, oh. to well, be honest. So apparently- I, I, I really thought it'd be a lot more. So apparently that was due to people- or businesses starting to comply with the new uh, rules of the California Act. Because if you're a big business, you almost guaranteed to satisfy the requirements because you're doing business in California, you've got California customers. So this law applies to any businesses that serve California residents and have at least 25 million in annual revenue or 50,000 people have data on 50,000 people in California. So, there's potentially a lot of smaller businesses under that 25 million revenue threshold that could have data on 50,000 people because an email address is data. 
if you have an email list that has more than 50,000 people on it, you got to comply with the California Consumer Privacy Act. And there's tons of businesses that are only doing a few million dollars that might have a big email list like that. Yeah, but the so the the way that the I'm understanding this limit though yeah. is it's data collection. So if you're collecting their data while they're on their tablet or PC, because the data is different that you're collecting, these all count as one. Like you might be you might be tracking, oh, that they're on their phone. Right. Now you're tracking that they're in their browser. And those are counting as separate. Well, unless you have a way to link them up. And that's actually the challenge is that I now, as a California resident, as part of this law, have the right to ask you, David, as the business that I'm working with, for instance, to provide me with all of the information that you've collected on me. So what if you don't have a database where all of the information is aggregated and linked to my identity? How do you go and get me what I want? Because the law is very broad. It's everything. And and, and I was reading uh, a New York Times newsletter. They, they have a great newsletter called Bits that's all about technology. And the author wrote, quote, does this mean Uber and Lyft will now be obliged to provide riders in California who request their personal data with a list of all the passenger ratings drivers give them after each ride? Will Amazon be required to give Prime customers detailed activity logs of their streaming video use? Will smart mattress companies have to show sleepers moment-by-moment records of their tossing and turning? And the technology consultant who is interviewed in this article says, yes, they have to come back with specific pieces of personal information. If they are collecting that, your sleep information, they have to respond with it. So all that information that a business is collecting, they somehow have to compile it and give it to you. And it could be anything. If they've got you on like an email list that has the name status seeking singles or something like that, you, you have to provide that information. Uh, theoretically, according to the law, nobody really knows how broad it is going to be. Because I guess, I don't know, maybe a judge will have to decide if there's any limits. Yeah, I imagine the the sharing, right? Where people, they partner up and then, oh, because of our partnership with company A, we're company B, it's nice to meet you and we're sending you this email, right? Like whether data transfer to that company and then from that company to the next company, like, yeah, where's the the boundaries on this? But yeah. nonetheless, the compliance is coming and probably need to take inventory of your, your bigger uh, clients and make sure they're in compliance because I imagine the fines on this are probably going to be pretty high. Yeah. Eventually. Yeah. So, so- because it's a revenue generator for the state. Yeah, so I'm trying to think, you know, what does this mean for accounting firms, accountants and bookkeepers? Uh, basically, if you have a customer in California and they ask for the data that you have on them personally, your customer, you have to provide it to them, whatever that is. It doesn't sound like it, it's necessarily data that they provided to you. It's any data that you have collected about them, whether or not they provided it. So what does that mean? So, so if you have a chat bot on your website and you have... And that that tracks some of their data, and you have some in the CRM. You have some possibly in a QuickBooks or Zero file. Yeah. But and yeah, how, how are you gonna how are you gonna gather all that up? Like, is there a strategy to that? Yeah. And let, let's say let's use that CRM example, right? Let's say I'm using a CRM for my firm, and I have a record of all the emails about my client, but with my client. But I also have a record of all of the notes that I have made about that client with other people in my firm, where the client wasn't included on those notes. Is that part like a Slack channel? Yeah. Do I have to provide them that internal conversation, that information? Nobody really knows exactly what is going to have to happen. So it sounds like there's room for uh, some new products <laughs> on the market so, to, to, to solve this and sell this to, to small business owners. There's one other part of this law that I want to highlight. Yeah. So employees have new rights as well. As of January 1, 
employers in California must give contractors and employees a notice explaining the types of information the company collects about them and for what purpose. So previously, if I had a work computer, uh, my employer could monitor that thing, monitor everything I'm doing on it, and didn't have to tell me. A lot of employers did just as a matter of courtesy, but they didn't have to. And they didn't have to tell you what they were monitoring. Now, an employer, if they're spying on you, has to tell you that they're doing it and tell you what they're collecting. So, if they're collecting all your browsing history. Can you, can you request what they're collecting and uh, see? I don't, I don't see that in here. They just have no, to tell so you. So, just consumers can do that. Consumers can do it, yeah. not employees. But I'm curious, like, what if you're both a consumer and an employee of a company? What if you work for Target? And so, you know, like, this is really interesting. Like, what if I go to Target or Amazon and I say, hey, well, Amazon's easy because you can see your order history. But what if I go to Target and they say, I want to see everything I've ever bought from you? Are they going to have to send me a list? Because they have that data, especially if I have like a loyalty I'm sure card. they have it because if you if you ever go to return something, you don't have a receipt. Yeah. You just give them the credit card. You just give them, they just start handing them credit cards and they keep scanning them and they find your order eventually. Yeah. So, they, they obviously have the data somewhere. So I, I just, but I own. imagine like it could create a huge cost for these companies to try and do that. So anyway, yeah. those are the two uh, new laws in the great state of California that uh, businesses have to worry about. Well, it's good that you uh, brought up the California privacy law because I think we can tie this to, did you hear Moss Adams had a data breach? Yeah, I saw that on, was on Going Concern? <laughs> it was on Going Concern, yeah. but Accounting Today actually had a little bit better article oh, about okay. it. So, uh, Did you find out what happened? Because it wasn't clear to me what happened. Yeah. So they sent out a notice of a data security incident that it detected in October exposing the names and social security numbers of some of its clients. So they reported this to the state attorney general's office because it's required and, and if there's been a breach. Moss Adams, by the way, is a I'm top close. 20 firm. So this is a pretty big deal. Big deal, yeah. yeah. And they, uh, they had to report the breach to the state of California because it's unencrypted personal information. But in the letter to the affected clients, the firm wrote that, and I'm going to read the quote here, recently learned that an unauthorized individual gained access to a Moss Adams employee's email account containing your personal information. We're writing to notify you of this incident. So two-factor authentication should keep people from getting authorized access to it. But my bigger question is like, why is sensitive data in an email? Oh, right. Social security numbers it's an, uh, and encrypted. Are people still flinging spreadsheets around with people's first names, last names, social? Oh, absolutely. Is that still absolutely. Happening? It's an accounting firm. There's like and an accounting firm. Oh, yeah. I mean, there. Oh, Jesus. You know, we we're we're emailing. I'm so naive. I'm so naive. we're emailing spreadsheets with payroll, employee registers, social security numbers, tax IDs. You know, all this stuff's living in email. It's all over, it's it's email email email. So yeah, you can if you hack an email account or an email server for a, a big firm, it's a gold mine. And I think this happened. What was it last year or year before? To one of the top big four, they they had an email server hacked, and they weren't using multi factor authentication. So it was just a password hack. Uh, and I'm wondering if that's what happened here too. Like you said, it's pretty hard to hack something if there's multi factor. So maybe there wasn't. Uh, it's like two fails, right? Because somebody gets your email, but you don't have sensitive data in it, who cares? Right. But if you have, it's just, it's, it's kind of mind blowing. So, yeah, so that happens. Well, there's a lot of firms that are still uh, having trouble, not internally, just externally. They're emailing like personal social security numbers, like to external domains, <laughs> not even securing that. Oh, I mean, they're probably even emailing out tax returns as PDFs just on email attachments. No, I, right? I worked yeah. when I was, when I was doing bookkeeping, I worked with an accountant uh, who, 
kept all of his clients' social security numbers, uh, passwords, everything in an Outlook contacts file that his firm shared on a local computer in the office, a networked computer. Guarantee you that still happens. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by OnPay. Many times when choosing a payroll service, you have to choose between a new startup with a great app or an established company whose tech may feel a little behind the times. With OnPay, you get the best of both worlds. A great app from an established company that's providing payroll for over 30 years in all 50 states. OnPay is an easy-to-use, full-service payroll with simple, straightforward pricing, and it includes all their features. Employee self-onboarding, HR tools, health insurance, workers' comp tracking, and 401k. And with an accountant's dashboard and partner program, combined with best-in-class integrations with Zero and QuickBooks, OnPay is the right fit for all your clients, whether they have just one or 500 employees. They also handle all the complicated stuff that other payroll providers don't, like agricultural payrolls, including Form 943, multi-state payrolls, and employees with H-2A visas. I'm really excited to tell you that OnPay is offering an exclusive promo code only for the listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast to get three free months of OnPay payroll service for any of your clients that you set up by February of 2020. Head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash onpay. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash O-N-P-A-Y. And use code CAP3FREE when you sign up your clients. That is C-A-P, the number three, F-R-E-E. And to be clear, you cannot get this promo anywhere else. It's only available to the listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast. So some more news. Um, Receipt Bank completed a $73 million uh, another funding round. So I know they've raised a lot of money so far. Do you have, like, how much have they raised so far? 2017, they had a $50 million round. But they'd raised more money before that. Over $100 million, pushing probably 130 to 150 I bet, um, total. Um, and the article really is a little UK-focused uh, and really talking about their success in the UK, which apparently is, is amazing. Um, and that they're really trying to use some of this money to really go after the U.S. market more, which is a whole different animal, right? The U.S. market's like a lot tougher. For, people underestimate how hard it is to, to crack the nut here. But um, they had some interesting data about their 2019. So Receipt Bank doubled the number of customers to more than 360,000 now. Oh, that is a lot for an add-on. And they support uh, more than 63,000 uh, advisors or accountants and advisors for their clients. Um, that it, it, it's, it's a huge number, but I also feel like in the grand scheme of things, like everybody's still doing manual data entry, right? Like, like, so there's still so much upside to this, right? So my big question is, where does Receipt Bank go from here? Because QuickBooks is building their own receipt capture into QuickBooks and Sage acquired auto entry. And Zero has HubDoc. So who's going to acquire Receipt Bank someday? And is OCR, you know, data entry, big enough for it to really be a standalone company long-term? We saw that Bill.com could IPO on just accounts payable, but is data entry that big a component? Or will the accounting apps, or will the accounting general ledger apps you know, build this in as a feature? So that was the, always the argument against like Dropbox, for instance, that Dropbox was a huge threat to Microsoft, and then Microsoft built OneDrive and made it good. I mean, we can get to this and we start talking about predictions a little bit. I think we can we hold off on, on little takes on this because I think there's there's uh, a lot of things happening, and we go through like people's predictions. We'll see where this this starts to fall in of like other possibilities for receipt because I think you 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 named the obvious things, which is oh they have an exit to one of the big accounting players, but then 
arguably like who are the big accounting players going forward? Right. And uh, is it the bank? The bank's fintech game. I mean, there's probably a lot of interesting uh, directions for this to go in the future. You know, I've I've been a receipt bank customer in the past. It's a, a great product and it, it it's very powerful. So really, c- congratulations to the team. Did you have any news? Uh, I, I still got four or five <laughs> news articles. Well, let, let's talk about uh, automation, right? Because it is a new year and, okay. and we haven't talked about that in a while. Uh, I spotted a story in the Wall Street Journal called Google AI Beats Doctors at Breast Cancer Detection Sometimes. And the gist of the story is that Go- – Sometimes. Well, it's really actually a lot of the time. Google's health research unit has developed an AI system that can match or outperform radiologists at detecting breast cancer. The doctors still beat the machines in some cases. So, like, the headline is misleading. It should actually be that, like, humans beat AI at breast cancer detection sometimes. Because this AI system, uh, Google got access to a large healthcare provider's database through some sort of agreement, and they've been feeding mammograms and patient records anonymously into this AI. And the AI has been learning itself how to detect breast cancer when given the patient record. Did this end up being a cancer diagnosis uh, or did it not? And then looking at the mammogram, and so it can it can learn like a human being does. And... It did, it did better uh, when the AI system was implemented. It reduced missed cases by 9.4% in the US and 2.7% in the UK compared with the original radiologist diagnoses. We're talking nine over 9% missed diagnoses the AI caught. That's a pretty significant reduction. It also reduced incorrect- So, so, so you'd, want to, you'd want to mm-hmm. not replace, but augment the humans with it. Right. I mean, that that's the idea and, and that's where sort of this is going is that it's making the, the – it's it's catching the stuff the radiologists missed. But at a certain point, you wondered if the system gets really good. This is the first time they've done it, right? If it, Do you really need the radiologists anymore? I mean, you definitely don't need as many because as cited in this article, in the UK, two radiologists typically read a mammogram. And the study found that the model didn't perform worse than the second reader and could potentially reduce their workload by 88%. So basically, you can get rid of the second radiologist and just have one radiologist and the AI as the second. So I was saying before- it They're going to have to start value billing. It didn't- it, <laughs> They get more efficient. They're going to have to value bill. Can't just bill by the read, right? Um, so it reduced the incorrect positive readings by 5.7% and 1.2% respectively in the US and the UK. So the UK had lower numbers because- I guess it's not clear in this article, but it sounds like in the UK, two radiologists read every mammogram. And and my inference is that in the US, it can be just one. So ours are less reliable. So basically, the the takeaway for me is let's give this AI tool to all the radiologists in the US because it'll dramatically improve our accuracy. Like this is this is AI in the real world. Uh, have you do you wear glasses or not? So I have. I had really bad vision and then I had LASIK. And so now I only have to wear glasses if I really want to see like super clear. So you, but you've been to the optometrist in the last seven years. Yeah, right? I went uh, last year. Yeah. So you go and you just put your face against six different machines. And then when you go into the back room with the actual optometrist in like four seconds, he's like, all right, we're done. Because the machines did all the work. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's kind of that same yeah, thing. Yeah. The machines can actually write your prescription and he's just verifying it or she. Yeah, exactly. And so, so you're right. Like, where does that person just get eliminated? Yeah. Right. And you just go to a mall kiosk, measure your face and your your eyes and your vision with all these machines, and then you order your glasses from, you know, some other service. Yeah. 
Uh, so what, yeah, and what's interesting too is that the cancers that the AI system caught were generally more invasive than those caught by the radiologists. But the researchers don't have an explanation for the discrepancies because they're using machine learning. And the way machine learning works is we're not programming the computer. It just sort of learns on its own. So we don't really know <laughs> how it works. So actually, you're kind of call you always need a human component because you need a baseline to compare it to. And I have some of that in some of the prediction stuff. It talks a little, uh, you know, some some things about the AI predictions for the well, year. And, and so let's. Why don't we? Do you have any more news stories? Yeah, I got some news. Want to plow through them really quick, and we don't have to discuss them yeah. deeply, but I can uh, bring up the the hits here. Yeah. H and R Block is putting virtual prep into Walmart. So essentially, it's similar to a TurboTax or QuickBooks Live model. H and R Block Block has a for their tax product. But what I found was interesting about it is they're side by side. If you take their typical H&R Block software, mm-hmm. right? It's just a box that says tax prep software, essentially. But all of these ones have people on them. So you're you're picking this face, this box with the person you want to quote unquote help you with your taxes. Now, I, there's only four different versions of a face. But I just thought psychologically that's an interesting way to, you know, it just proves that's the model people want. This do it yourself with the, you know, a video camera. I'm going to chat with somebody. But the box leads with the person, not with the software. So, so I go in, I go into the store, and I like there's a terminal that I can chat with somebody on. No, that's what I thought it was at first. Uh, and I started doing research. I don't think that exists. I think it's just there's a software section of Walmart, mm-hmm. and there's boxes of software on the shelf oh. and this is the uh they they call it a pro go pro to go or something like gotcha that. so you you buy the software you take it home and then and then it's basically the same thing as like a TurboTax live kind of situation exactly but the but the box i mean the way they market it you're, you're gonna buy them with the face you're gonna be like that's the person that's gonna help me with my taxes okay it's got the face on the box got it Exactly. Exactly. It'd be it'd be like it'd be like we've talked about if you quick you go to Costco and they have all those QuickBooks boxes there. Yeah. Claudel's faces on the box. So instead of buying, you're buying a relationship, right? Instead of just buying the software. And you said this last week. You said something similar to this about accounting firms. Put your face on your website, or put a picture of yourself using Zoom or Skype or something. Video, video chat. chat. Show that you can video <laughs> chat. Absolutely. You you have three more weeks before the Super Bowl and everybody knows that this exists. Um, I have a couple of other smaller articles that aren't super news, but um, it's an article. It's uh, from Saster. So this is software. It's for SaaS companies, yeah. right? But it's about how to keep your customers for a decade or longer. And I thought he just had really good tips in there that people should think about for their own accounting firm. Like taking that long-term view to where you might even give your small business client the first 12 months free. To eighteen months free because you're you want to win that client for a decade. So don't right? don't um, well, and and actually I brought something with me today about how long accounting firms keep their clients. Do you want to know this? This is a stat from Accounting Today. Sounds like it'll go right with yeah, my article. Right? So how well, long is that? So more than half of accounting firm clients have been with firms their firm for eight or more years, and over a third have been with them a decade or longer. This is from the Accountants Confidence Index study. That accounting today does with ADP. And it also found that more than half of firms have relatively low rates of churn. So two thirds, almost two thirds report that they have churn of 6% or less in their client base in each new year. That's pretty low t- churn. And I wonder if, the, if that's like for personal tax clients or small businesses, because I imagine that there has to be small business churn. So many small businesses go under. E- yeah. I, th- I think this is for overall, right? And, and overall, not just CAS. Uh-huh. I mean, we've known this. This is not news that accounting firms are actually a great 
business to own because they're so steady. Once you get a client, you're going to have them for, if you don't screw up for a decade or more, only 15% of firms, their average client has been with them for less than five years. And I'm going to guess that's probably a lot of new firms. So relatively low rates of churn. It's funny though, actually, uh, a lot of firms aren't even seeking new clients. Only 68% of firms are actively seeking new clients in 2020. (laughs) So that's interesting because his article here talks about how you should keep, even for clients that you lost to a competitor or maybe somebody you never closed a sale on, you should just keep talking to them and keep that relationship going because they might run a rough patch with their existing firm. Yeah. And you have a chance of stealing them because once you get, like you said, once you get them, you have them for 10 years, a decade. And then the other thing that I thought was an interesting takeaway was get on a jet and go visit them. And I think that's really more than ever now in this day of virtual, right? Like go and visit your paying customers, not, not fly to go make a sale, but go visit your paying, your, your, your real paying customers. And he goes, he went on to say he's never had a client ever leave. Who he visited. That he's ever visited. Well, and, and I, I know personally cloud accountants who do this, where they will take a week every now and then. And if they are in California, go to the East Coast and just go and meet with their big clients all up and down the East Coast. And that that in-person effort is sometimes what it takes to keep that client. It's really worth it. Got it. Um, another article was uh, a little bit about um, online. I know we've talked about this before, like online um, lending surges for small mm-hmm. businesses. Stats are actually coming out here, which are kind of shocking. So in 2017, just 19% of small businesses had loans. 19% of small businesses had any loans on the books. Or, t- or took out a loan, yep. In oh, took out a loan, okay. How many do you think did it this year? I I think it's going to be a lot actually because the economy has been doing well. Yeah. So it's one third soft, wow. soft financing. And a lot of what's driven this is all these easier action, like QuickBooks Capital, on deck, right? All these easier ways to get the, the money, right? Through uh, electronic means, these these new banks. And what's happening is the rates can be anywhere from 9% to 358% with the average rate 94%. 94% interest rate? Yeah. So even on deck, who who is the, an exception is actually publicly disclosing the rates, said they're charging between 9 and 98.3%. That's just insane. 93% interest. Yeah. So what's happening is if California and New York are really looking to expand protection because most small business owners, so because it's a business, you don't get those Consumer uh, Protection Act right. for your credit. Uh, but most of these small businesses are so teeny that they're really, the personal liability is on them still. And so they're really looking to expand out the uh, protection for uh, for these small businesses. So this is an area where we as accountants and bookkeepers can help our clients get them better interest rates because it can't be that hard to improve on an almost 100% interest rate. Well, especially since one third. So assume one third of your small business clients have got probably some bad loan on the books. Yeah. You know, every week here, we've been telling people, here's another service you could offer your clients. Like they're just out there in our face. Like the advising level type services are just there. I don't even know if this is news. The IRS mileage rate changed. What is it at now? Uh, 57.5 cents per mile. It dropped a half a cent. Oh, it dropped down. That's it. That's a story. That's it. That's it. <laughs> that story's done. Um, the FASB, Financial Accounting Standards Board, is getting a new chair effective July 1st, 2020, this year. Ernst & Young's chief accountant, Richard Jones, is going to be the next chair of the FASB, and he's going to succeed Russell Golden. 
here's the thing about this that kind of saddens me. Richard Jones has spent his entire career at Ernst & Young. I mean, pretty much since 1987. He has been an assurance staff, senior manager, director of consultations, current role as chief accountant partner. So this man has been in audit pretty much almost all of his career. And now, in big four audit specifically, and now he is going to be making the accounting rules. He has never worked in industry. He's never been a CFO. He's never been on the analyst investor side. And so how do we ever get to a point where, I, I, I know you've heard me talk on the show about the inadequacies of modern gap in the past. We've had um, guests on the show talking about it. And like, this is just going to continue the status quo. Yeah, because what, what, what new vision or new model or new direction is this person going to take it? And, and so until the change happens, Russell Golden is going to be focusing on a few issues. This was in a, a Wall Street Journal article here. So the big, the big things that FASB is going to tackle in the next six months is whether or not to propose changes to the measurement of goodwill. Goodwill is an intangible asset created when a company acquires another business for more than the value of its hard assets. This concept is hard enough for accountants to understand the general public. It's just, it's like a lost cause, right? That it's an asset. Does this make sense to you at all, David, as a non-accountant, the, the idea of goodwill? Yes. Yeah? Uh, conceptually, it does. Tell me what it is. Please explain all it to right. me because so, I, so, I don't get it. So I have a dental office. Yeah. In my community, in the small town I live in, I'm highly respected and that has some sort of value for my company and I can put it on my books apparently. But what – it's not – so I buy your dental practice for more than the sum of all of its assets. It's more than the value of its customer base, more than the building, more than – like we add all that up and I'm paying a premium because I think there's some extra value above and beyond what we have measured individually. But why do I then – put that on my own balance sheet as an asset as like I can't sell you I can't sell my goodwill that I have purchased no, so that's a good point because like Coca-Cola could put I guess the value of the brand yeah, but they could sell their brand but, right you can exchange it for money right goodwill is not exchangeable anyway it's it's a whole like philosophical thing and there's some people who say we shouldn't even have goodwill. It's, it was a mistake to begin with, and it should just be a reduction in stockholders' equity when we you know, purchase something for more than the value of its assets. But uh, anyway, that's not what they're really considering. They're just going to decide whether or not companies should test goodwill for potential impairment each year or if they're going to give public companies the option to just amortize it. So let's say, I, let's say the goodwill is measured at, I don't know, a million dollars when I bought your practice, David. I could decide that I'm going to just amortize it over 10 years. So eventually at the end of 10 years, uh, I don't have any goodwill and I have an expense of $100,000 every year. And that way I don't have to do this crazy thing that public companies currently have to do, which is every single year, David, I would have to look at that practice that I acquired from you and I would have to measure and try to figure out, is it still worth what it was before? Is the goodwill still worth what I paid for it? How do you do that? How do I decide if there was a reduction in the value of the overall business? I mean, it's a massive, complicated thing that we have to do. Well, and I know it, who's it, working on it. What's that? You ready for my next article? Let's hear it. <laughs> All right. So, this is an article uh, from uh, Bloomberg Tax. Big Four invest billions in tech reshaping their identities. So, I, I don't 
what I liked about this article, it pulled together separate things we've probably spoken about during the pre- previous year. They're at now at $9 billion pledged. So KPMG has pledged $5 billion into for automation and AI internally. PwC has pledged $3 billion of spending on technology and training internally. EY's uh, pledged a billion dollars on something similar. Deloitte hasn't said what their dollar figure is, but they're carving out a niche, creating automated services for law firms and legal offices. So I don't know how much news is here, but I'm just wondering, like, that's a lot of money. And then I'm wondering, how well will they execute? Because that's a lot of money being bet on four companies. And you think about like the VC market and and all the apps and all the successes that are out there, right? Being spread across dozens and dozens or hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of possible bets and companies and solutions. And then this this kind of reminds me of the California thing, this build it yourself. Like what what are these, what are these, what is the big four actually going to pump out? Like what is the result of all this spend they're going to do? All this investment? $9 billion. Well, so think about it this way. Accounting standards just keep getting more and more complicated. We have four or five times more complexity in accounting without really producing that much better information, but it creates a lot of work. For instance, the whole current measurement of goodwill is a great example, right? Having to to do valuations every single year. There's all sorts of examples where for a public company, for every single account on your balance sheet, you've got to do some complicated analysis and you have to use software to do it because it would take too long with people. So, you know, now we've got a whole industry for lease accounting software. We've got entire industries for, you know, other measurements that need to happen. And and so, so the big four are just kind of cash in on that, right? The complexity of regulation creates this compliance burden. And the big four sees this potential where, hey, if we create some apps that we can sell to our clients, uh, we can help them lower their personnel costs and we can capture the value there and, and make billions of dollars. Yeah. So, so it's a way to, you know, their consulting business will be like, Hey, by the way, we also have this app that does this and then keep them from using an app that's just publicly available possibly. That's my theory. You know? Well, then why don't they just spend that money and just buy every single app that exists in the whole small business ecosystem? They could just buy everybody. <laughs> because those, because those apps are solving for a very different market. Like the, the big four are targeting those fortune, I don't know what, 2000, yep. right? Which which you can build customized software for them and sell it to them for a lot of money. Yeah, but these are the, this is the same big four that that has worked you know on that project with the payroll fiasco in uh, Canada on their their <laughs> software package. And I'm imagining some of the big fours consulted on this California project. I, I, I'm guessing, Prob- right? I, or probably, California I just know. doing this 100 on their own. Well, they make even more money when it fails because then they have to charge all these consulting fees to get it working again. Like you, you want the thing to be hard to use. I mean, I'm, not, I'm sure nobody, I'm not saying people are actually thinking that, you know, they're not evil. It's just the incentives are set up so that there's, there's like no incentive for them to make it so that it's turnkey once they're done. Anyway, speaking of big businesses, I got a stat for you. You know, I love my stats. Okay. So I've cited these stats in the past. APQC has an open standards benchmarking database. They survey thousands of businesses, mostly large businesses in this country, medium and large, and they uh, aggregate the data and they publish it every now and then. Um, you know, Some of it publicly, a lot of it you have to subscribe to. They'll occasionally publish some really interesting stuff in CFO. And so they have once again updated this number, the cost to perform the finance function as a percentage of revenue. So what does your entire finance function cost in your business as a percentage of your overall revenue? And they found 
that the median business spends 1% of revenue on finance. Top performers, only 0.56%, so almost twice as productive. And then the bottom performers, 1.6%. So the top performers are almost three times more efficient at finance than the bottom performers. But what's really interesting is that bottom performers have improved over the last five years or so, four years or so. Uh, In 2015, they were 2% of revenue and they've gone down to 1.6%, which is actually, you know, a pretty darn good improvement on a percentage basis, right? They've improved 20%. I attribute this all to tech. Even the bottom performers, even the slowest companies to adopt are adopting technology and that's allowing them to spend less on salaries. And so overall finance is getting more efficient. Which is similar to the article last week about tech spending, right? The people that that they can reach that 1% spending on their tech improvements, they have more revenue, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Cool. Because, you know, think about it. If you can reduce headcount with tech, yeah, you may have some sticker shock when you're looking at an application that costs $10,000 a year, but if it can help you reduce headcount in your business by one, you've probably just seen a 10x return on investment right there. Or maybe you take half of somebody's job and allocate it somewhere somewhere else, right? That's a five times improvement, stuff like that. So anyway, it's kind of interesting. These are big businesses, but I like looking at these percentages too, because it's a good way to figure out how much to charge for services in a different way other than hourly billing. When I looked at businesses that I was quoting for outsourced accounting services, I would use a variety of methods to estimate what I should charge. Uh, some of it was based on our old hours estimate method in the firm. So again, you know that's pretty common. Everyone's used to that. You just estimate how many hours am I going to be spending on this client every month and you multiply it by a target hourly rate and you get a fixed fee. Not the best way to do it, but pretty easy and we're all familiar with that. Another way to do it that I would compare it with is the percentage method. So I'd say, what is a reasonable percentage of revenue for this business to be spending on their accounting and finance? So I would say, let's say that's 2% in a smaller business because smaller businesses, you know, they have more overhead when it comes to that, right? They're, they're not like these big businesses where finance could be um, a smaller percentage of their revenue. So let's say it's 2%. I would just multiply their revenue by 2% or expenses if they were spending more than they were making. And I'd f- compare that to my other estimate uh, based on hours and I'd see, does this make sense, right? And uh, if they were similar, then I'd know, hey, I'd, I'd come up with kind of a good good amount. So just as a time check here, we're coming up to the top of the hour for our listeners. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. So we well, can, I know you have to get going, David. So, you know, we had so much news to talk about. Maybe let's break out our predictions into its own episode. Just do as a bonus. Yeah. Let's do it. Okay. So you got to go to your appointment. Um, why don't we come back and we'll, we'll record our predictions separately. Okay. That's what we'll do. Uh, I'll, right. I'll have one less tooth, but we will uh, record our person <laughs> before it's ever later. Fortunately, we're not on camera, so uh, no one will see your missing tooth. <laughs> I should record while I'm getting my tooth taken out. That oh, would yeah. Be, like, we'll, we'll, a Let's live episode. Some, we'll give you some time for the Novocaine to wear off so that you're not mumbling through the session. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And uh, it was this again, always fun chatting with you, David. If people want to get in touch with you. Well, it's the best place for them to do that. Uh, easiest way is on Twitter. I'm at David Leary. I am at Blake T. Oliver. And uh, I'll, I'll check in with you again shortly. All right. Bye. Bye.